If you're visiting with us this morning, if you're newer here, I want to welcome you. Introduce myself. My name is J.D. Summers, and I serve as pastor here at Redemption Hill Church. And we have been taking the last couple weeks to um, talk about our mission as a church and what are the key values that sort of describe who we are and what we're about as a ministry. Uh, So if you're kind of investigating and looking into um, our church, this is a good time to be around. Let's bow and pray, and then we're going to turn our attention to God's word this morning. Lord, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. Lord, we come to worship you today, um, not because of our circumstances, not because of how we feel, but simply because of who you are. You are worthy. You're worthy of our affection, our obedience, our praise, our honor, our attention. Lord, strengthen our hearts to seek you and to listen to your spirit as you teach us through your word today. God, be glorified in this church. Be lifted up in our midst and help us to see you as you are. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Our mission here at Redemption Hill Church, if you've been around a while, this is redundant, which I'm fine with, by the way. But our mission is to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus. Being disciples, which is following Christ, and making disciples, helping others to follow Christ, is the means by which we obey God. That's how we seek to please him and, and, and recruit others to praise him. We follow Christ. We call others to do the same. But in the Gospel of John, we learn something that is striking. In calling us to follow Christ, God is seeking not just learners, although disciples are learners. He's seeking not just followers, although disciples are followers. He's seeking not just servants, although we are servants, but God is seeking worshipers. John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is seeking worshipers. Worshipers. This is, my friends, what we were made for. We're told in Isaiah chapter 43 uh, of this truth. God says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were made to bring praise and honor and glory to God. That is why we exist. We were made for this and we were saved for this. First Peter tells us that God's purpose in, in saving sinners like you and me is the creation, get this, of a new people who will declare his praise. First Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were created to worship and we were saved to worship. God is seeking true worshipers. So what is worship? What is it that God is seeking from us? What is it that God has made us to do? What is it that God has saved us to do? I think we can just describe it simply. The heart of worship, which is where it starts is a heart that loves and trusts and fears and needs and desires and values God over all else. 
That is the heart that God is seeking. And this heart of worship, this heart that loves and trusts and fears and needs and desires and values God over all else, this heart will be expressed in acts of worship. It will be expressed in praise, in adoration, in thanksgiving. It will be expressed as we confess our need to God and as we express our dependence on God. There is much that we could say about personal individual worship. We express praise and delight and love in our obedience to Christ. We express worship in personal prayer and in personal praise. Worship is not reserved for Sunday. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 describe all of life as worship. Paul exhorts us, he says, I urge you in view of God's mercies to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. We offer our whole selves to God. As an act of worship. But in the local church, which is where we are this morning, even though we don't have a building, we are the church, the people of God gathered. We have the privilege of gathering together and uniting our hearts on the Lord's Day in corporate worship, in our singing, in our preaching, in our praying. As we share together in the Lord's Supper, we are engaging in acts of worship to God, expressing our love and our trust and our dependence, and our gratitude, and our need for him. Because worship is what God is seeking, it matters that we worship. We don't just sing on Sunday because that's sort of traditionally what churches have always done, or that's a good way to get people sort of warmed up for the sermon. No, it matters that we worship. But we also need to understand this morning that not all activities labeled worship are pleasing to God. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 The author writes, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Acceptable worship implies that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship, does it not? So it matters that we worship, but it also matters how we worship. We need to make sure that our worship is pleasing, not just to a certain demographic, not just to human curators of art. We need to make sure our worship is pleasing to the God who alone is worthy of worship. What does he find acceptable? What is it that pleases him? That is really the question that matters most, isn't it? as we evaluate biblical worship. This morning, I want to share with you four marks of acceptable worship. This will take us all around the scriptures today. As we walk through these four marks of acceptable worship, my hope is that you individually will understand what it is that God desires in you, but also my hope is that you'll understand the biblical truths that shape our corporate worship here at Redemption Hill Church so that you will better understand why we do what we do and what it is that we're aiming at um, as we seek to worship God together corporately as the church gathered. So first of all, this morning, the first mark of acceptable worship is that corporate worship must be, first of all, God-centered. It must be God-centered. This might seem a little bit obvious and redundant to you, but God is the object of our worship. You might think that's unnecessary to point out, but as sinful people, we need to be reminded who it is that we are worshiping. There's a reason that the first two of the Ten Commandments have to do with rightly ordered worship. 
Exodus 20, verse 3, God tells his people, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You see, our sinful tendency, as several of our men were reminded yesterday, so we went down to the Ironman Summit, our sinful tendency is to always insert ourselves into worship, to slip into idolatry. But simply put, worship is to God, and it is to be about God, and it is to be for God. He alone is worthy of worship, and he deserves our worship. Romans eleven thirty six says that from him and through him and to him are all things. And that includes our worship. Psalm 29, verse 1, David writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 115, verse 1, the psalmist writes, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Friends, this means that our worship must fundamentally be about God. We are to sing of his glory. We are to to rejoice in his character, to remember what he has done. We sing for his pleasure, to bring honor to his name. Our worship must always place the spotlight on God himself and God alone. Too much of modern worship has very little to do with God we reject a man-centered worship that focuses on man's feelings, on man's needs, on man's thoughts, on man's actions. We reject a man-centered worship that caters to man's desires, that prioritizes man's preferences. Our worship is not just musical therapy to give people a little hit of dopamine on Sunday morning. Our worship is not intended just to be a positive pep talk to help us leave, you know, with a pep in our step. No, our worship is to be radically God-centered. This means our worship will declare his glory. Psalm 96.4 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. God-centered worship delights in who God is, in his character, in his attributes. Lamentations 3.22 reminds us that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And his mercies never come to an end. And the writer breaks out in worship and declares, great is your faithfulness. We delight in who God is. God-centered worship celebrates what God has done. We praise him for his powerful works. We express gratitude for his grace and his love. Revelation 4.11, we see the scene in heaven as they cry out, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We praise God for what he has done. In Revelation 1.5, the book opens with these words, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We praise God for what he has done. His power as creator. His power as redeemer. We worship him for his deeds. God-centered worship confesses our need for him and rejoices in his sufficiency to meet our need. Psalm 40, verse 17, 
As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. That is God-centered worship. God-centered worship expresses our love for him and our confidence in his purposes, in his promises. Psalm 18 verse 1 says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. God-centered worship expresses love for God and confident faith in his promises and his purposes. And you know what the beauty of this kind of God-centered worship is? It actually brings us the most comfort. To get our eyes off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, and to behold our God in his glory, to remember him, to meditate on who he is and what he has done. This is what brings us joy. And this is what helps us to feel as we ought. Biblical worship both expresses joy and leads us into a deeper experience of joy as we gaze upon the all-satisfying God of grace. But man-centered worship is hollow. It's like a sugar rush. My kids want to eat a whole thing of cotton candy for dinner. It would taste good, kind of, to them, I guess, not to me, but it wouldn't give you any lasting sustenance. There's no nutritional value there. Worship that is centered around man, our preferences, our feelings, our thoughts, it has no value. Worship that is acceptable to God must first and foremost be radically God-centered. God-centered in its content, God-centered in its aim, God-centered in its orientation. We sing to God and about God and for God, for his pleasure and his glory. That's the first mark of biblical worship. But secondly... Worship that is acceptable to God. Corporate worship must be Christ-focused. It must be Christ-focused. And this is true because our worship is mediated by Christ. That's a big word we don't use very often. A mediator is someone who stands between two parties. And Christ is our mediator. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, this is through Christ, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Christ is our mediator. It is through Christ that we can come to God, that we can address God, that we can receive his grace and forgiveness, and that we can express our love and gratitude. If you take Christ out of that equation, we cannot worship him. And this is something that I think much modern worship forgets. Music is not our mediator. I want you to think about that for a second. Music is not our mediator. We don't bring down the Holy Spirit by the atmosphere we create with our music. We don't connect with God via music. We connect with God through his son, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Apart from the sacrifice of Christ, apart from the ransom he paid, we have no way to connect to God. This is why our worship is Christ-focused, because he is our mediator who opens the curtain, who pulls it back and beckons us to come into the throne of grace to receive help and mercy, but also to express our joy, to cast our crowns at his feet, to worship him. 
1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, get this, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It is in our union with the Son of God that we have access to the Father. It is through our union with the Son of God that we experience the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. It is by the blood of Christ that our hearts are made pure, that our songs are made holy, that our worship is made acceptable to a holy God. So friends, our worship needs to reflect this reality. Our worship ought to celebrate the work of Christ. We sing of Jesus and him crucified. We rejoice in the grace of the cross. In our worship, we remember the sufferings of Christ, and we honor the lamb who was slain. We celebrate the power of Jesus over death. We celebrate the glory of Christ's resurrection. We marvel at his divine wisdom as he has reversed the curse by taking upon himself the very sting of death. We anticipate the return of Christ, his kingdom, his future glory. And at every turn, our worship is to be Christ-focused. We worship as Christians, as those who have access to God the Father through the work of God the Son. I really hope that if someone who was uh, Jewish and and committed to the Jewish faith, who believed in the Old Testament but not the New, or if someone who was a, uh, a Muslim who believed that there is one God, or if someone who was a Mormon who believes in a kind of Jesus, or someone who is even a Roman Catholic who believes in Father, Son, and Spirit but has a different gospel, I hope that as they would come into our church that our songs would evangelize them, that they would be brought face-to-face with the reality of our sin, our helplessness, but the sufficient grace of Christ who died and rose again for sinners, that they would understand as we worship that we stand before God as his children because of what Christ did. Our worship is to be Christ-focused. There's a third mark of worship that is acceptable to God. Corporate worship must be saturated with the scriptures. To bring your attention back to John chapter 4, verse 24, as Jesus speaks about how God is seeking true worshipers, he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Truth. I think it's easy for us to think about worship, corporate worship especially, as being primarily a musical and an emotional experience, because it is both of those things. But Jesus mentions neither music nor emotion when he talks about true worshipers. He mentions the spirit and truth. Truth is an essential element of biblical worship, worship that is acceptable to God. God is not pleased when we say or sing things about him that are not true or that are not clear or that do not honor him. And he's not left us in the dark to figure out what he's like, to figure out what kinds of things he has done, to figure out his character. God in his grace has revealed himself to us. And he's done that through his word in the scriptures. So this means that our worship ought to be saturated with biblical truth. Not only does such worship please God, But you know what? It's also really good for us. Uh, Many times I stand here to preach, and so I am 
I am responsible to pour out and to give, but I often feel fed in this church because I worship as a member of this church. I listen to the prayers of other members in this body. I I listen as the scriptures are read um, by others who lead us, and I listen as all of us sing profound truths about God from his word, and I feel instructed. I feel encouraged. I feel humbled. I feel comforted. It is good for us to sing and to worship according to the word. Such worship instructs and encourages and nourishes our souls. I love Colossians 3, 16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul's point is that if the word of Christ dwells in you richly, you're going to teach each other and you're going to worship. And what's going to come out in your teaching and your worship? The truth of God's word. Worship that is saturated with scripture. We want our worship to be, to be saturated with biblical truth. We want to sing the right things about God. We want our worship to be rooted in the biblical gospel, not a gospel of man's creation. We want our songs and our prayers and our counsel to be theologically accurate, shaped by God's word. We want our worship to be rooted in biblical authority. As we talked about last week, the guide and authority in the church is not tradition. It is not culture. It is not human preference. It's the word of God. This applies to worship. We want our worship to be marked by biblical content. We sing God's very words back to him. We have a whole book of the Bible in the Psalms that is written in in the voice of man speaking to God. We're shown how to worship, and we're given a resource. We can sing these words back to God, and we do so often here in this church. Many of our other songs may not be quoting scripture, but they are nothing short of God's truth in poetic form. Guys, this is the worship that is acceptable to God, and it's the kind of worship that strengthens a church. Some of you have sat with people on their deathbed, and nobody's singing the bubblegum radio songs in those moments. We need songs that are substantive, that root us in the deep truths about God. Such worship is acceptable to him, and it nourishes our souls. This means we refuse to engage in any sort of empty worship that is simply an emotional experience that lacks biblical truth. Such worship is meaningless to God, and it is fruitless for us. But this doesn't mean that emotions are out of bounds, that they're unnecessary. A fourth mark of worship that is acceptable to God is this. Corporate worship must be from the heart. Must be from the heart. In John, John's gospel, Jesus says, those who worship must worship in what? In spirit and in truth. J.I. Packer points out that to worship in spirit means we worship God from a heart that has been renewed by the spirit of God. If you bring a dead heart, a heart that is still dead in sins and trespasses, a heart that does not know God, a heart that has not been sanctified and made new, a heart that has not had its stony nature transformed into being a heart of flesh, then you cannot worship God from the heart. True worshipers are those who have experienced the inner transformation that comes through faith in Christ. True conversion, 
being born again. That enables us to come before God and worship him, not just with our mouths, but with our hearts. God desires worship from a renewed heart and worship that is wholehearted and honest and authentic. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 8, this people, speaking of the Pharisees, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That kind of worship that only comes from the mouth and doesn't come from the heart, Jesus says that's vain worship. It's a waste. It's empty. It is not pleasing or acceptable to God. Half-hearted worship does not honor our Savior. Singing one thing when you believe another is not pleasing to God. Singing with a false passion that's merely external and manufactured is not pleasing to God. Do you remember what Jesus says the greatest commandment is? Maybe some of you kids can help me out. The first and greatest commandment is what? You can say it out loud. Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the number one thing God wants from us. So do you think God is pleased when we worship him with half our heart, half our soul, half our mind, and half our strength? No. This wholehearted love for God is to be expressed in our worship. So this brings up a very practical question. Um, something that people have asked me and, and something that I've wrestled with is something Carrie and I have talked about at various times, especially if you are supposed to stand up and lead worship, as both of us have had chances to do. What do you do when you don't feel the words that are on the screen or the words that are in the hymn book or the words in scripture you're reading and attempting to pray back to God? What do you do in that case? Is it hypocritical to worship unless... You're feeling super close to God and you feel at the top of the mountain, but how much of our lives has actually lived in that place? I know chunks of my life are not lived at the top of the mountain. And there are times where I don't feel super close and intimately connected to God. What do we do in those cases? What do you do when you feel spiritually cold or apathetic? What do you do when you feel far from God? What do you do when you feel weak in your faith? What do you do when you feel apathetic towards his truth? I've wrestled with this as someone who has led worship, as someone who preaches to you on a weekly basis. And here's what I have come to. Through prayer and reflection and and the counsel of others, I really do believe that it is good to sing with a heart that is praying and longing for those words to be true, even if they're not quite yet at the moment. We've sang songs this morning that perhaps affirmed things that you don't know if you could stand here and publicly affirm them to the whole church and say, this is where I'm at right now. But I think it's possible for us to give our voice and give our hearts and lean forward in faith and say, God, this is what's true, and I pray that as I'm singing this, you would bring my heart in line with these truths. That's part of why we worship. Part of why we gather to worship is because we need our hearts realigned. We need our focus placed back on Christ. We need to be reminded that these things are true and have our faith strengthened. So I don't think it's hypocrisy to stand and to give your voice and your heart to worship if you feel that some of these things are a challenge for you. We see prayers like this in the scriptures. I frequently pray the words of Psalm 8611, unite my heart to fear your name. And I have to pray that because my heart gets divided, distracted. Unite my heart to fear your name. 
Psalm 119.36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If that is the posture of your heart, then I think it is right and good and necessary to stand and to sing and pray, God, that these words become true of me as I'm singing them. We sing as an affirmation of what is true and right and good. Sometimes warring to bring our hearts in line with the truths that we're singing. I believe that God is pleased by such faith that declares firmly what is good and what is true, even if our feelings are lagging behind. This is different than hypocrisy. Hypocrisy says one thing while doing another. Hypocrisy tries to hide reality and present yourself as being something that you're not. But this kind of heart is different. This is the cry of the desperate believer, like the father in Mark, who cries out, I believe... But what comes next? Help my unbelief. Such faith, weak but genuine, is pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God. God is pleased by wholehearted worship. Worship that is acceptable to him comes from the heart. But there's some other descriptions of the heart that, that, that are necessary as far as pleasing God in our worship. In addition to being wholehearted, we must sing with a believing heart. We must sing our faith, sing what is true, sing as a declaration of your confidence that, yes, God, what you say and who you are is true. We sing with a humble heart. We draw near to God with humility. We do not come into his presence with presumption, but we recognize how small and how weak and how needy and how sinful that we are. Scripture promises that we can draw near to God And he will draw near to us as we cleanse our hands and we humble our hearts. That God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we worship with a humble heart. We worship with a thankful heart. Corporate worship should be filled with gratitude for the good gifts of our Father. For the riches that we have in Christ. For the ongoing ministry of the Spirit in and through us. Worship from the heart expresses gratitude to God. We draw near to worship also with a reverent heart. A reverent heart. I read from Hebrews 12 earlier. I'll read it again. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Irreverent worship. Is not pleasing to God. Flippancy, casualness, this is not acceptable worship. Psalm 89, verse 6 Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Rhetorical question. No one. No one can. Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? No one. No one is like him. He is a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. We are to worship God with reverence and awe, to fear him. The fear of God produces worship and must be expressed in worship. If you don't take God seriously, you will not worship him. Or if you do, it will not be the kind of worship that pleases him. The fear of God produces worship and must be expressed in worship. Where there is no fear of God, there will be no true worship. There can be no flippancy or casualness as we approach the very throne of the God who made the heavens and the earth. 
The one who is holy, holy, holy. The one who sent his son to redeem us by his blood. We draw near with boldness, yes, but we draw near with reverence, with fear, and with awe. That should be descriptive of our heart as we engage in corporate worship. But we also are to worship God with a joyful heart. Worship from the heart will express gratitude and reverence, yes, but there will also be an overflow of joy. Carrie reminded me this week of Psalm 95, verses 1 through 3. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. I love how verse 3 points out that fear and reverence are not incompatible with joy. Some people think they are. Some people think everything's either sober and serious and like, you know, heavy or it's joyful. But these two things come hand in hand. Psalm 95 says we come with thanksgiving, making a joyful noise. And it says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. His greatness and our reverence for him is not incompatible with true joy. If you sing with no smile, no joy, no warmth, no zeal, such singing is a lie. It means the sounds that we're forming with our mouths are hollow. And the truths that we claim to believe and the truths that we're singing together must not have fully landed on our hearts. Because if they had, there would be an expression of joy and gratitude and praise that overflows our hearts. If there is no joy from the heart in our worship, it means we lack the gratitude that should grow from a heart that has received grace. I know we all have different personalities We all have different ways that we express joy. We're not trying to press everybody into one mold, some cookie cutter um, model of what it looks like to be joyful. But I want to encourage you that as we gather to worship God, the kind of worship he delights in is the worship that is marked by genuine joy overflowing from the heart. Joy that is rooted not in our circumstances, Not in what other people can do for us, but joy that is tethered to the good news of who God is and what he's done in sending his son Jesus for us. Practically, I want to bring out of all this, just as we head towards our conclusion, um, two different sort of categories for application. And the first of these is your individual responsibility. You know, we're talking about corporate worship, but corporate worship is made up of individual people who gather together in the church. And I want to encourage you, one way you can apply these truths is in the steps that you take to personally prepare your heart for worship. One of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, has this line. It says, tune my heart to sing your praise. And as someone who who plays the guitar and understands how stringed instrument works, there is something that is grating about an instrument that's out of tune. It's not pleasing, And it's not ready to be used. It needs some preparation. It it needs some adjustments before it can really do what it's made to do. Sometimes you and I need some adjustments. We need some preparation. We need our hearts to be tuned. And if you wait to do that until the first song is already kind of being played, it, it might be too late. Are you the kind of person who takes time during the week to prepare your heart to worship God? Very practically, we've 
been doing something for the last five years. We send out during the middle of the week um, an email that kind of informs everyone, here's what we're going to be um, um, dealing with in our teaching time on Sunday morning. And many times we even send out a list of the songs so that you can learn some of the ones you don't know. And, and the reason for that is so that you can prepare your heart for worship, so that you come in with your heart already tuned, already having prayed, already having meditated on who God is and what God has done, that you have planned to be here and to worship God, that it's not something we just go through casually. Well, I'm here, I guess, because I'm always here. I just kind of throw one foot in front of the other, and this is my Sunday routine, but maybe the heart's not ready. Personally, you will be able to offer to God worship that is pleasing and acceptable, but part of that's going to require some preparation. And you may need to preach the gospel to yourself. You may need to remind yourself of how big God is and how small you are. You may need to remind yourself that you've been made for worship, and you've been saved for the purpose of offering worship to God. And it takes some effort. It takes me effort. It takes work sometimes to get there, but this is something, it's a privilege that God calls us to. Really, corporate worship should be the overflow of private worship. If you and I are living lives that are, that are offered to God as a living sacrifice, if you and I are individually, personally, worshiping God day in and day out, then when we get together, it'll be all these little matches put together into a bigger flame. And that personal, private worship will overflow as we worship corporately. Individually, I want to also remind you all that you have the privilege and the obligation to participate in worship. And I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but as somebody who has led worship in the past, um, sometimes you see people who appear to be not participating. And you never know why. You can't read someone's heart. And it may be, well, I don't know this song. That's fine. But sometimes it's because I don't really believe this. I don't really want to be here. Or, I don't like singing. I just like to hear good sermons. I'll let the other people do the music. But I want to exhort you to commit to participate in the corporate worship of the church, knowing that this is what God desires, knowing that this is more than just tradition. This is something that is intended to be offered, a sacrifice of praise to God. And it brings into question, if you are someone who does not delight in worshiping God, it brings into question whether you know him. Whether you really get it, how worthy he is, whether you've really understood the gospel of grace, whether it's convicted you of your sin, but also comforted you with his mercy and his love, because if you've experienced that, then wild horses can't stop you from worshiping. You won't have to be motivated. You won't have to have a worship leader who gets you whipped up into shape and says, all right, everybody, come on, let's, you know, you won't need that kind of cheerleading personal encounter with the God of glory and grace. That's what's needed for worship. And if that's true of you, you will be eager to participate. Your worship is pleasing to God, and, and honestly, your brothers and sisters in this room who may be struggling, who may be wrestling with their own faith and their own doubts, they need to hear you singing those things right next to them, right behind them, even if you're off tune, out of, if your pitch is bad or if you mess up some of the words, because like me, you start singing the next verse before Carrie starts singing the next verse, and then you have to backpedal a little bit. That's okay. This is not a performance. It's not about looking good or sounding good. This is about glorifying God and edifying our brothers and sisters as we give our hearts and our voices to sing songs of praise and joy to our God. So personally, individually, I want to exhort you to prepare your heart 
to commit to participate in our, our acts of corporate worship. And then congregationally, I want to speak to us to a moment just as a church. Worship, corporate worship should be an expression of our unity, our unity. God-centered worship, if that's what we're really doing here, means that what we do here on Sunday is not about you, and it's not about me. It's not about any of the leaders or the people who help serve. It's not about our preferences. And these realities should humble us, but also unite us. If we're worshiping God through the mediation of Christ, if we are Christ-focused, that means that we are coming together, not because we like the same style of music. Full confession, I don't always like all the songs we sing here. And neither does Carrie, and he leads them. (laughs) We set our preferences aside. We come here together not because we like the same music, not because we like a small church more than a big church, not because we just have certain friends here that we naturally have connection with. We come here together because we're part of the body of Christ, because we're all standing together at the foot of the cross, because we've been united in our faith. Corporate worship is an expression of that. We are members of one body, brothers and sisters adopted into God's family. So this unites us. And as we worship together, this is an expression of our unity. That we're trusting in the same things, believing in the same gospel, worshiping the same Savior, reading the same Bible, serving in the same context. Our corporate worship congregationally is to be an expression of unity. Unity. J.C. Ryle with this, we'll close this morning. Um, was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. He was in England. And he pastored. And he has many writings that have been helpful to me. And in his little booklet on worship, he points out an amazing fact. J.C. Ryle points out that prayer is temporary. And that preaching, what we're doing now, what we talked about last week, has so much value. Preaching is temporary. Evangelism, the great commission that we've been called to, sharing the gospel with people, it's temporary. Discipleship, helping other people grow in their faith, it's temporary. But you know what's eternal? It's worship. Worship. Those who don't love and delight in worship, who have no priority for corporate worship in their own life, who see it as a necessary evil, something they have to check off a box. I wonder sometimes if they're going to heaven, and if they are, how much they'll really like it when they get there. Because corporate worship is a little glimpse into the joy and glory of eternity. Our worship, our worship is imperfect. We see through eyes of faith, but not face to face. We bring in with us the discouragements and the sufferings and the trials and, and the burdens of sin. We bring with us an incomplete faith, but it's still beautiful and precious. But you know what's amazing is that worship is going to be transposed into a higher key when we see Christ. Corporate worship should whet our appetite for heaven. It should increase our longing for a perfect worship, a worship free from sin, free from distraction, free from weakness, the worship that beholds Christ face to face as faith is exchanged for sight. We have the privilege of one day experiencing worship in unison with saints from around the world and the saints that have gone before. 
And such worship, get this, such worship will be the ultimate thrill that our souls were created for. Something we've only felt faint echoes of here in this world. What a joyous privilege that has been purchased for us by the blood of Christ. May our worship in this church bring him glory and honor as we await his return and anticipate that perfect worship. Father, as we have surveyed many different places in your word this morning, I thank you for how you've clearly shown us that we were made for your glory, that we were saved to proclaim your excellencies, and that you delight in worship, that you are seeking worshipers, that in saving sinners you are recruiting more members for your worship team, for that eternal choir, for the community of the redeemed who will worship the lamb who was slain. I thank you, God, for the joy and the comfort that worship brings us, even though it's not ultimately for us, it's for you. I do pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would purify our worship, that you would help us to be on guard against a distracted heart or half-hearted worship, that you would produce in us joy and gratitude and reverence as we gather together to worship. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to value and prioritize the, the corporate worship of this church. I know people can listen to sermons anytime during the week. We record them. But there's something that happens here when the church gathers that cannot happen outside of Sunday morning. I pray, Lord, that you would tune our hearts to desire participation in corporate worship, that you tune our hearts to see you as you are and to respond to you with proper emotion, proper affection of gratitude and joy and amazement at who you are, all that you have done. I pray, Father, that we would revere you and fear you, that we would delight in you, and that our hearts would be filled to bursting with gratitude as we worship you. Lord, be pleased with the worship of this church and with these saints. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.